morning, Faith Family at the Landing. Happy Father's Day to all the dads and granddads. So thankful for you and so thankful for the opportunity to celebrate our dads as families, especially today. There's a bracing reality, more sober than I fully am able to grasp. But I will now ask for the Lord's help with you to grasp the reality of Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the coming certain and irreversible judgment of God. I hear the words that come out of my mouth, but I'm afraid my soul isn't large enough to tremble at the greatness of what we have just heard. Let's ask for soul enlarging help right now. Father, help me preach and your precious beloved bride here. A word from Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15, which matches the sobriety and the gravity and the weight of the reality this passage reveals. Let there be no glossing, no boredom, no diminishing, no ignoring, no belittling. Only awe and wonder that this world is aiming toward a certain and unstoppable conclusion. The final judgment of God over all he has made. In shallow, selfish moments, we might wish it weren't so. But in clear-minded, deeper, kinder, more loving moments, we welcome it. Make us ready. Strengthen saints by this passage and draw out of darkness through faith granted to unbelievers so that they would be saved. Maybe someone listening by live stream or by recording later, or even someone in this room, would you save Lord with such a swiftness and such a decisiveness and such an earnestness that clearly that person whom you save is not going to endure the lake of fire, the second death but will be shielded and protected and saved by you even through the final judgment. I realize that what I'm asking is impossible for any human effort to achieve. So do your great work, Lord Jesus, by your spirit present within us and among us. Enlarge our souls now to feel and to believe and to live according to the weight of what we're about to see in Jesus' name. I pray. Amen. You know there is coming a final day, don't you? When all humanity will stand before the God of all creation and he will judge every one of us, believer and unbeliever, in righteousness. The whole Bible proclaims it. Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul to the Athenians. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But you, if you're a believer, need not fear or recoil from God's coming judgment, but you can welcome it. Why? Because all who have received Christ will stand before the judgment and find that their sins are utterly washed away, blotted out. We will give an account and our account will be not guilty for our sin by reason of the sacrificial substitute for all our personal sins by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as wonderful as that is now for your life to have your sins taken away, think of how you feel when you'll stand before the living God and it's proven and shown by the books that Christ has taken all your sins away. Praise his name. In Revelation 20, 7 through 10, last week we saw the Lord describes a final battle before the end of the world. Christ has come back. He engages in a final battle, fighting against Gog and Magog, which is a, a reference to Ezekiel's summary term for all the wicked, all the nations raging against the Lord. In the final battle, we've seen it in chapter 16. We see it at the end of chapter 19. We see it here in nearly the end of chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, that there is a swift fire coming from the mouth of God and the enemies are consumed. Now here in this last paragraph, there's a final judgment of all humanity. It's the time when John 5, 24 says, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's this protection of believers who pass from death to life. They are proclaimed not guilty, even as they stand with unbelievers and all humanity before the Lord. There's a resurrection, John 5 tells us, when all persons from the sea and from the earth are reconstituted and stand before the Lord, a number in the billions, surely, from all time and all places, standing before the Lord, and he judges. For the believer, he proclaims not guilty, and for the unbeliever, they have no defense whatsoever, and the sentence proclaimed against them will be irreversible, unimpeachable, and forever. I see four strands or themes in this paragraph that Kevin has just read. Here are my four headings. The judgment scene, the book of life, the book of deeds, and the lake of fire. That's my four headings. I'll go through each briefly. Before I take up the judgment scene, before I take up the book of life, the book of deeds, and the lake of fire, hear this. If we believe as a church, if I believe as a Christian, and if you do too, that there is an eternal and final judgment awaiting all humanity, as the Bible plainly teaches and we will see, then not only must I live my life according to the fact that there is a final judgment, so thankful for Christ who cleanses me of sin, so eager to live a life filled with acts that reveal I truly am Christ and love him, and just as eager to go tell unbelievers, oh Lord, send 
unbelieving children to vacation Bible school so that we can tell them about Christ and they can believe and not go through this judgment. Don't you feel that? I feel that so keenly. For my child, for my grandchild, for my spouse, for my parents, for my roommates, for my co-workers, for my friends and enemies who don't know Christ. Oh Lord, save them because I don't want this for them. It's cruel, in other words, to withhold from the world the knowledge that we're aware that this life is moving inexorably toward a final judgment. We must tell of it. Even if we're hated, even if we're killed, even if we're marginalized, even if we're lied about, we must tell of the coming judgment. Suppose the God-haters of our day, demonically inspired, whether they would admit it or not, are like vultures that have landed hungry and ravenous on an ice floe to devour the little bunnies that were stranded on that ice floe. Mutilating them, butchering them, devouring them. It's like the ungodly do with children in our culture. All for the sake of progress. The ice flow flows down the river and they see the banks going by and they see the swift current and the vulture boasts of progress. You can see the banks going by. Don't, don't be one of those dull, weak birds who, who fly to the outcropped branches of the gospel that stretch out from the shore over the flowing water and are safe on those branches. Those branches connected to solid trees of truth down in the banks of God's word. Don't be resistant to progress. Come on with us. Jump on the ice floe and eat and devour. That's the only way to experience progress and be on the right side of history. It's where we're going, says the vulture. Look. The silly banks and the trees, they fade away. Look downstream. All you see is this mist and then in the mist a rainbow. That's where we're going. Complete removal of all the Bible and gospel and morality and law. Just a rainbow in the mist. You can even hear kind of a rumbling. That's the remaking of the world. Without all your gospel, religion, Bible and law. Soon the law of gravity in nature will take over. And the terrified vulture who's done devouring the innocents on his ice floe will try to lift off from the ice floe as it falls over the edge of the waterfall and realize, oh, his talons have frozen to the ice floe. We do well to proclaim the coming judgment. Yes. There is a rainbow ahead, but it's not the rainbow you think it is. 
Look at the judgment scene, verse 11. It's called the great white throne judgment because it reveals the finality and the gravity and the very final supreme court of all courts. It's great in that there is no greater court. It is white in that it is absolute, pure, righteous, and holy. None of its decisions can ever be appealed or flawed. The throne means it's not only a judicial bench, but it's the very seat of the king's power and authority. None can question, none can impeach, none can accuse the king. He has all the authority and power to enact the sentence he gives. This great white throne judgment is rooted in and fulfills Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Listen to the background of Revelation 20 and Daniel 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Who is the one seated on the throne? I take it to be the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John 5.22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Romans 2 says, they, shall, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the Lamb is both our judge and for the believer, our advocate. At the final judgment, the Lamb, judging in perfect concert with the Father and the Spirit, is also the advocate for the believer. Verse 11 further says, The earth and sky flew away, fly away, and they're not to be found like like all things cursed, they cannot stand and exist before the eyes of one whose holy nature is too pure to look upon evil. The earth and the sky fleeing away make way for the new heavens and the earth to come. All persons are standing before the Lord. They've been resurrected, as it were, out of the earth and sea. They are gathered together. John 5, 28 and 29 tells us this would happen. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming, Jesus said, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So with resurrected bodies... Believers able to enjoy with that resurrection body the eternal joy with the Lord in heaven forever. And unbelievers with resurrected bodies never dying in the lake of fire, but able and dedicated to suffering and pain forever. That's the first heading. The second heading, the book of life, verses 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So first we have to see the book of life open. This is all the person standing before God, but... Some of the persons in all humanity standing before God have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. We saw this in Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The beast 
has no authority ever over those whose name is in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Jesus said something similar and enlightening to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I trust that that's a reference to the judgment. So the question we must ask is, am I in the book? Is my name in the book? John gives an answer for how you can know. Listen to Revelation 13, 10. It's just two verses after the verse I just read a moment ago. Surely everyone's wondering, am I in the book? How can I know if my name is in the book? Listen carefully. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must be he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Saints are those who do not worship the beast because their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. How do saints show that they're written in the book of life? They endure with faith. John gives the answer. He gave the same answer in his letter called his first epistle. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the most important question you should be asking yourself right now is, is there faith in my heart? Is there faith in my heart? Am I settled with Christ? Am I trusting in him? Oh, not perfectly. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And oh, the struggles with sin continue and grace and forgiveness. Yes, but is there a seed, even a tiny seed of faith in my heart? Find it and take heart. Your faith is what overcomes the world, including the final judgment. Romans 3.28, for we hold that no one is justified, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.33, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. One commentator said, as I was studying this passage, the Lamb's book is not full of deserving people, but believing people. This is the elect from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who have heard the gospel and believe. They are those who hear and trust in Christ. They are those who will not receive the mark of the beast now or ever, but trust in Christ through all things, even if it means their death. This being written in the Lamb's book of life is what enables them to resist receiving the mark of the beast. How do we know that? We know that because everyone who wasn't in the Lamb's book of life took the mark of the beast. Every single one. Revelation 17, 8, the beast that you saw was and is not is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The world is on the lookout ready for this beast to come and say, lie to me, wow me, marvel me, astonish me, entertain me, give me something to look at that makes me 
desire and covet you and all your power. And believers will say, I have the grace of God and the power within me by his help to say, no, I don't want the lies that the beast of this world offers and everyone else marvels at. So chapter 20, verse 15 at the very end says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If your name is not in the book, if there isn't faith in your heart revealing that you are written by name in the book, then the certain outcome the Bible proclaims to you and I now in your hearing proclaim is the lake of fire. There should well up inside you right now an overwhelming sense of how thankful you are if you know Christ. How thankful I am that I know Christ. I don't feel worthy. I don't feel at all deserving. But Revelation 1.5 says Christ loved us and freed us from our sins. And chapter 5 verse 9 says he came to ransom by his blood nations to join him in singing from every tribe, tongue, and people. The book of life. Believers in it will not see the lake of fire at the final judgment. And then there are other books opened. I'm calling them the books of deeds. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. What is this teaching? Does it somehow teach as if it could reverse the whole witness of Scripture that we are saved by our works? No, in fact, it does not. Not even close. But twice it says the dead, believers and unbelievers, are judged by what they had done. This isn't new. This isn't different. This is no surprise to us who read our Bibles. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Romans 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's clear all over the Bible, works are how we are judged Grace is how we are justified. I wonder if you can put those two sentences together in your mind. Works are how we are judged. Grace is how we are justified. How does that work? How does that fit together? Some interpreters jump right in and say, oh, oh, I see. We're saved, justified by grace. But there are levels of rewards and these works are only referring to rewards. The problem with that is that's not what happens here in Revelation 20. There are rewards in heaven. There are diminishments of pain in hell. It would have been better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you because you rejected Christ, Jesus said, to those who reject him. So there are levels in heaven and in hell, rewards. Yes, indeed, but that's not what's in view here. In Revelation 20, 11 through 15, it's the final judgment between those who go to the lake of fire and those who spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. 
So how do we put together these outward works that are in the books of deeds and the fact that we are saved by grace? Here's how the Bible puts them together. So powerful, so transformative, so regenerative and making of all things new is genuine salvation in your life that it has the ability to create new desires, new works, and new fruit in your life such that this fruit of good works is evidence to confirm that you're born again. You see, the Hebrew and Greek mind never could picture someone who's split apart. They could never picture someone whose head is saying, yeah, I really like what the Bible says, but it hasn't gotten all the way down to my heart. They could never picture that person. They would say, oh, so you're having a fight inside yourself. You're confused. You're beating yourself up inside. You're torn apart. Or, or, or they can never conceive of a person who says, yep, in my head, I agree. And in my heart, I really like it. But my behavior hasn't caught up yet. They'd say, you're not with yourself. You're apart from yourself. You're battling within yourself. You're not okay. The Hebrew would say you lack shalom. Jesus would say, as he said of the prodigal who was running far away from God, needing the pig food in the pigsty, he needs to come to himself. The last 300 years where we have tried to take human beings and try to split them into mind and body and, and soul and heart and all the different parts and make up humanity as if we're kind of a recipe of a bunch of parts. That idea within the last 300 years has done us no service. Because the Bible makes so very clear, if I love Jesus, it's going to come out in some way or other, broken and flawed and filled with sin. But if I love Jesus, you should be able to know. If I tell you I love my wife, Kathy Nelson, she's my wife, and, I go and you go talk to her, she should be able to give you enough evidence to condemn me that I'm really her husband. She should be able to tell you that, in fact, yes, he does love me. He shows it by his actions. Works are the expected fruit, some kind of small evidence. Even think of the thief on the cross. It wasn't a balancing of scales. His whole life was given over to sin. The massive size of his behavior in his life was given over to sin. That's why he's a thief on the cross. But in those last few moments, there was a tiny flicker of faith. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he says to you, I work in you what I require of you. By my grace, I enable you to live and to demonstrate something new and wonderful has happened in the transformation of your life from death to life, from darkness to light, from being lost to found. And some evidence, some fruit somewhere will grow on the limbs of your tree. You can see this is what John has in mind when he writes later in chapter 21, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Listen to verse 27 of chapter 21. Listen to how closely linked together our behavior, our life is with having been written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 27 of chapter 21. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, the holy city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see the connection? Behavior which is pure, not detestable, clean and not unclean. 
that comes from the person whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. What's the link? The link is saving faith in the middle. It's not that we earn our salvation by works. Oh, no, we're saved by Christ's good works and his good works alone. It's all by grace to us. And even the good works we do, we do by his grace so that he gets all the praise and the glory, even for anything good we may do. This is taught plainly in one of the most famous salvation passages in the Bible. Listen carefully to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this salvation by grace through faith, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We who are saved walk in good works because we are his workmanship. He reworked us. He saved us. He regenerated us. He made us new. And therefore, we walk in the good works he prepared beforehand. I've shared this passage with you before, but it seems so very appropriate. I asked the Lord several times, do I include it here? And I couldn't escape the prompting of his spirit that I must. Dwell with me again on 1 Kings 3. Do you remember two prostitutes coming to King Solomon who asked for wisdom from God? One was an actual mother of a baby, and the other, her baby had died, and she was grieving, and in her grief, tried to steal the first woman's baby. This is 1 Kings three sixteen and following. So they came to King Solomon, and they asked for his wisdom. Decide between us, and they both made their case. It's my baby. No, the other one said, no, it's mine. What does King Solomon do? He calls for a sword and he says, bring me the baby. I'm going to cut the baby in two and give half to each. The woman who was lying said, do it. The woman who was actually the baby's mother said, no, no, no. Please don't harm the child. Give the child to her. But by no means kill the child. Solomon knew in a second, without any thought, exactly who the true mo child's mother was. And he gave the child to the mother who was willing to spare the child, even if it meant giving the child up to a woman who wanted to take and steal the child. Did the first woman's willingness to give up the child so the child would live, did that make her the child's true mother? No, no, no. It didn't make her the child's true mother. It revealed that she was the child's true mother. Her love for the child became clear evidence that she was already the child's mother. And so when you and I stand before the judgment seat, books will be opened and it will be shown in those books to God and for all to see that there will be works done by us, attached to our names, which will reveal we really do love Christ, though we've done so falteringly and tainted by sin. The elect will have their works demonstrated just like Paul says in Galatians 5, faith working through love. And James says the same thing, faith without works is dead. 
There will be no balancing of the scales. It will simply be acts of only God's design and his knowledge where he says, yes, you can see I am not an unjust judge. I am not pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. I am a holy and just God and I am judging justly. These people have done works by my spirit that show they are mine. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 through 37, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. First John 2, 3, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Matthew 7, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord, says Hebrews 12, 14. Careful theologians throughout the history of the church have tried to summarize exactly what are the fruits that we are looking for that give evidence, even though there is constant battle with sin, constant need of returning to the Lord for forgiveness. And even in our seeking the Lord for forgiveness, we have to find forgiveness. Yet one theologian, Jonathan Edwards, preached in New England in the 1730s, and he wrote an entire book helping discern between false evidences of unbelief and true evidences of belief. And he summed it all up with this sentence. He talked about the power of love to bear evidence to our faith. But it is doubtless true, says Edwards, and evident from the scriptures, that the essence of all true religion, the kind that stands before the judgment, lies in holy love and that in this divine affection and in habitual disposition to it. And that light which is the foundation of it and those things which are the fruits of it consists the whole of religion. Holy love. So what do you do? Do not go out of this message or out of this service seeking to live a holy life in your own power. That would be the addition of more sin in your life. Flee to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, work in me the kind of faith that works itself out in love that conveys to myself and all around me that I'm genuinely yours, though humbly for the ever-continuing battle of sin. And that at the day of judgment, I will stand and you will see the works that I have done in your power, by your grace, giving all praise and honor to you and none to me. And then standing before the judgment, when those books of deeds are open, and the good works that are being displayed that have done, been done by believers in the power of Christ as fruit that we've just seen so plainly are read. You can just imagine an unbeliever knowing what's coming. They can smell the lake of fire burning and they're an unbeliever and they know they have despised Christ always and they now have forever exactly what they wanted their whole lives to run away from Christ and they'll have that now for eternity just as they desired. And as they stand just about ready to be condemned into the lake of fire, they call out to God, the lamb and the throne with you and I standing in earshot. 
liar, phony, sinner, hypocrite, get out, they'll say, in their hatred of us. And in their fear of being condemned for eternity themselves, their sin will be on display. And God will hold up the books of deeds. And wherever there was an act of sin, the red redaction will have blotted it out. Our sins are washed away, forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. No sin will stand against us to condemn us. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The very thing Christ will not do with the names of the elect and not blot them out from the book of life is exactly what Christ does by his blood for the acts of our sin in the book of deeds. He blots them out. Only acts of righteousness will be counted, and these acts of righteousness are owing to the grace of Christ, so in them he receives all the glory as well. So it will come to pass, Matthew 5, 7, Jesus' words, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Every mercy you've ever shown will be remembered and leveled upon you by God at the judgment. All your acts of kindness will be remembered on the day when he who sees and remembers all applies against your sin the blood of his son to blot it out and applies his favor, his honor, and his blessing upon every act of mercy you've ever done. We are justified. And in our justifying, God is justified. He's not seen as an unjust judge. He's not seen as playing secret backroom deals. He is not seen as guilty of nepotism by putting his son on the throne and his son as our advocate at the same time. No, in fact, the book of deeds reveals that there really is power in the blood to forgive us of our sins and to create in us the kind of righteousness that bears witness we are his. Finally, the lake of torment. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is not celebrated in the Bible. Do you know that? We're not given levels. We're not given gruesome details. We're not given salacious images of suffering and death. We're simply told they were thrown into the lake of fire. Simple, solemn, irreversible, just. Jesus describes hell as unending fire. Persons in there weep and gnash their teeth. Their suffering is unquenchable. It's in darkness. It's called the lake of fire. We are told they have resurrected bodies so that they are perishing but never perish. We don't take Jesus for a liar. He spoke plainly and without hesitation as a massive motivation for us to see God's greatness, our sinfulness, hell's unendingness, and the massive glorious power of forgiving grace to bring sinners like me and you into his heaven. 
I heard several people teach on this passage over the last several weeks. Several of them have said this. And with this, I am declaring myself with all passion. I believe this and even would die for what I'm about to say. But know this, I'm opposed for what I'm about to say. By true, true truth tellers and wise people that otherwise I trust. It was said that in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, there is no mercy in this passage. The one passage in the Bible where there's no mercy. So what did I do? I started writing down all the mercies I could see. With this, I end. At the judgment, unbelievers will see finally that their every breath they were given in this life on this earth was owing to God's incredible mercy. They will plead that someone will go to their families with the word of God before they die. So they repeatedly, who reject repeatedly Christ, will have an opportunity to receive him one more time before they themselves join the suffering ones. Luke 16. Second, such mercy that the Bible includes this warning means we must receive this mercy. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 is a painful passage to think about, preach on, study, and listen to. But it's in the Bible as an act of mercy. The Bible is warning certain judgment as a kind of mercy to all unbelievers in the world today. Churches, believers, families, ministries that tell of this judgment are extending that mercy to more and more. We dare not keep it quiet. Third. Do you not see the rich mercy of God to believers to send his son as a propitiation for our sins and to wash away the guilt of our sins, blotting out our sins from the books of deeds, declaring to us that we are righteous with the righteousness of his son, then to hold us fast during our life, even right now, maybe through means of such a broken sermon as this, that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ and find ourselves trusting in Christ right to the very end? What? Breathtaking mercy. And oh, the mercy, mysterious as it is, of a God who says repeatedly, I, by my son's hand, have written in my book of life your name before the foundation of the world. When you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, arrive in heaven, you will sit down at a marriage table and there will be a granite name plate right in front of your seat with your name on it. And it will be old, etched there before the foundation of the world. It is a vindication of our genuine faith in the death of Christ that this judgment occurs. It is a destruction unequivocal and irreversible of all believers and deceivers who have never repented along with death and Hades. It also, this judgment exalts the righteousness of God. No one can accuse him of wrongdoing. And it exalts the mercy of God in sovereign grace to save whom he will save. One of the effects of thinking about the judgment is that we feel so very unworthy. Imagining an unbeliever shouting liar and phony about us to God the Father at the very last hour has a pinch because it rings with the struggles with guilt every one of us have within. Father's Day is a, is a day because, a powerful day because 
Every one of us fathers are so very thankful for the great privilege we have to have been called father. But we also, moms and wives hear this, we also are keenly aware that we've blown it. We're not interested in being made much of because we keenly are aware that there is a battle of sin within me and in every father that I could have done better. But that sense of guilt and that sense of having could have done better is inside every mother and every woman, every man, every child, every person who knows Christ. It's almost like our eyes are open to the glory of God and the wonder of grace. And we look at our lives and we say, oh, there are so many ways in which I am grieved over how I have conducted myself in word and in feelings and in thoughts and in deeds. Remember this. There is infinitely more mercy and grace in God than there is sin in us and in the world. And God says, I come to you today, dads, but really to all of you. And I proclaim the ocean of my grace to you. I proclaim the forgiveness of sins. I proclaim the blotting out of the record of your sins by the blood of my son blotting it red and covering it forever so that God will be seen as righteous and you as utterly forgiven. So dads, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward and crowd this stage and this floor in front and sing with me a glorious hymn called Before the Throne of God. And sing of this forgiveness and this perfect intercession our advocate Christ has on our behalf. Not because we feel like we've done a great job as dads. But in a kind of admission that we know we are dads surely by grace. Would you pray with me? It's a sobering passage, Lord, that I thank you for. I thank you for its promise. I thank you for its reminder of the gospel. I thank you for its sobriety and its seriousness and gravity. I thank you that it gives weight to everything we do. It reminds us that the mission is needful and weighty and triumphant. It reminds us that your son's death and resurrection is all powerful and precious. It reminds us that there is a life after this one in the new heavens and the new earth with you and that none of us in our right mind would dare to want to miss it. And it reminds us that you are not a God to be trifled with, but you have an eternity of suffering matching the infinite offense sin is against you. Oh God, we worship you and bless you for Revelation 20. We worship you and bless you for the advocate King Jesus, our Lamb of God, who takes away our sins and the sins of the world and who judges justly, seated on his throne. We pray now that you would help us sing in response to your word, thankful for this great advocate we have in Christ before the throne of God in heaven, in whose name I pray all these things. Amen. Dads, would you join me? Worship team.